0: Welcome to episode 58 of Radicals in Conversation, the monthly podcast from Pluto Press, one of the world's leading independent radical publishers. I'm your host, Chris Brown. In 2022, workers have taken strike action on a massive scale, and many more are in the process of balloting to take strike action. Here in Britain, NHS workers, postal workers, criminal barristers, Amazon workers, rail workers, university lecturers and many more have all walked out in the face of attacks on pay, pensions and working conditions. Amidst the cost of living and energy crises, spiralling inflation and now the grim prospect of another recession, the need to fight such battles is urgent and acute. In October, Pluto published a new book in our Wildcat series called Workers Can Win – a Guide to Organising at Work. Written by a longtime labour organiser, Ian Allenson, this nuts and bolts guide to organising your workplace argues that organising builds confidence, capacity, and collective power, and with power, we can win change. Well, I'm excited to be joined on the show this month by Ian to talk about some of the key themes and ideas within his book. And we're also joined on the panel by Siobhan Aston an NHS nurse based in Scotland who's involved in grassroots organising with her union, the Royal College of Nursing, or RCN. We'll be talking about long-term grievances around pay and working conditions in the NHS, new developments in anti-union legislation working their way through Parliament, and of course, how people can meaningfully express their solidarity with workers on strike today. As ever, podcast listeners can get 50% off the book and a selection of our related titles on trade unions and labour organising. Just need to go to plutobooks.com forward slash podcast reading and use the coupon podcast at the checkout. So without further ado, here are Ian and Siobhan on Radicals and Conversation. Yeah, so Siobhan, Ian, thank you both very much for taking the time to come on the show. Really appreciate it. It's obviously been a year of industrial action perhaps in a way that we've not seen for quite some time in this country and I know abroad as well. So it feels very timely to be having a conversation about Ian, your new book which was I guess published last month in October 2022. It's called Workers Can Win, A Guide to Organising at Work. It's part of our Wildcat series which is you know our series looking at labour struggles and yeah a very timely publication. But before we I guess dive into some of the stuff around the book. Maybe I could just ask you both to introduce yourselves, um, say a little bit about who you are, what your, I guess, professional and political backgrounds are. So, um, yeah, Ian, we'll we'll start with you.
1: Yeah, I've been a workplace activist for many years, uh, mainly in the private sector. I'm currently working in a public sector job. And uh, I was working in the IT industry, which is overwhelmingly not unionized and didn't really have a tradition of union action so I spent a lot of time organizing there and managed to lead a number of strikes including the first national strike in the IT industry so that, that's kind of where I'm coming from as a workplace activist also got involved in the union beyond the workplace including spending 10 years on the exec of Amicus and then Unite as it as it now is
0: Brilliant. Yeah, thanks. And, uh, yeah, Siobhan, tell us a little bit about yourself and, yeah, the work that you do.
2: So, as you know, I'm, I'm actually a staff nurse, uh, specifically I work in neurological rehabilitation. I'm really quite new to activism. Past couple of years, uh, started out with NHS Workers Say No in July of 2020, And I've gradually become more and more involved, really, after just joining them for a Twitter storm, and then they sucked me in. (laughs) So I've been working towards, uh, you know, achieving ballot turnouts in Scotland, really across the UK, but specifically Scotland, because that's where I am.
0: Yeah, fantastic. Well, we'll definitely be coming back to ask you a bit more about your experience of being new to, I guess, yeah, political activism and union work. But we'll take a little bit of a step back, I suppose. And Ian, I'm going to ask you, you know, what made you decide to write this new book, Workers Can Win? Yeah, who were you hoping to reach with it?
1: The main driver for writing the book was frustration. So... Over many years as an activist, I found myself learning stuff from all over the place, from training courses I went on, from things I read, from people I met, events I attended and so on. And over and over again, I found myself thinking, I wish somebody had told me that five years ago. And I was frustrated that there wasn't a decent guide to organising at work for workers, particularly for workers in Britain. So I found most of the stuff I was reading either tended to just deal with the kind of nitty gritty techniques or present some kind of grand plan for how to revitalise the global working class movement. And I think as an activist in a workplace, you really need a mixture of the techniques and the ideas and the politics. So out of frustration that such a book didn't exist, I thought I'd better write one. Um, So that's what's driven it. In terms of who it's aimed at, I guess there are three audiences really. I think there's workers who just want to improve things in some way, and obviously there's been a big increase in that over the last year or so with the cost of living crisis and the uptick in strikes has really promoted a lot more interest in unionisation from new people as well, not just people in existing unionised industries and, and workplaces. Secondly, I thought that there were a lot of people who'd been inspired by Jeremy Corbyn's leadership of the Labour Party who were really disappointed with um, the, the defeat that suffered and what's come since and a substantial number of those people have recognized that organizing at work is a crucial way of trying to build working class power and achieve change so th- that's a second group and then the third group i think there's been some interesting developments people involved in a number of social movements I particularly pick out the climate movement here Where quite often in the past, unions and environmentalists were really at loggerheads, with fault on both sides. Unions backing destructive projects and some some environmentalists really treating workers in polluting industries as the enemy rather than part of the potential solution. But I think that's really begun to change. So we've had exciting developments like XR Trade Unionists. I don't know if you saw the um, statement that Extinction Rebellion put out in support of the Forley oil refinery workers, but it was excellent and they've had people down there supporting people on the picket line uh, earlier this year. So uh, some really encouraging developments there. And again, I think a lot of people from some of the social movements recognising that to win the kind of social changes that they want to see in in wider society, that really we can't afford to neglect the potential power of organising at work.
0: Mm, Yeah, definitely. I mean, I have a question here, which you've just sort of touched on there, which is, you know, why is organising in the workplace in particular so important, even if, you know, we might personally be motivated more by, you know, political issues like climate, things that go beyond, I suppose, bread and butter workplace demands. So what is it about, yeah, organising in the workplace, instead of, say, organising in a different context, like in a climate campaigning movement or something that is so valuable?
1: I mean, I'm not arguing that other areas of campaigning don't matter. I think we need campaigning and organising in lots of contexts. In fact, I'd say the working class is strongest when campaigning in the workplace and in the community come together. Mm. But I felt there was a big gap that I think organising at work has been really neglected for a long time, partly because unions have been on the back foot for several decades. And, uh, you know, if you were coming into activism and looking to see change in society it was unlikely that you would see them as an inspiring place to get involved there were other much more attractive options obviously the uptick in strikes has begun to change that and people uh, seeing the potential power and it's that potential power that's I think the crucial thing for me is that, that the very nature of the employment relationship generates conflict you know employers are always trying to get more out of us for less. Hmm. And there's always change in the relationships at work, and that generates conflict. So it's not just about, you know, do I happen to have a bad manager or something like that? It's inherent in that employment relationship that that conflict is there. And for workers, you know, can only really achieve significant power, the ability to change things collectively. So there's a big push there and clearly it's workers that make the world go around isn't it everything stops when workers aren't doing their jobs and we see the panic you know in the press and from the government about you know different groups of workers potentially taking action because we're the people who make everything work day in day out and then get very little for it in return so there's enormous potential power there i also think there's something inherently democratic about people organizing at work precisely because we can only do it Effectively by doing it collectively and by including as many people as possible. So uh, there's an impetus to democracy in organising at work that I think is quite important for those of us who want to see wider social change.
0: Mm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's a few different directions I could take us in from this answer. But before we maybe talk about some of the things that that have changed this year in terms of the the action that's been taking place, and particularly I suppose with the NHS. Talking about power there and potential power and how workers hold this potential power and how different groups of workers, this is something that comes through in the book, how different groups of workers have different kinds of power or potential power and that this could have a bearing on how they're able to win their demands. So I was wondering if you could give us briefly some of the different kinds of examples of the different kinds of power that you talk about in the book and maybe, you know, you could do this in making reference to some of the workforces that are currently, you know, taking strike action
1: I think it's really useful if we can get workers discussing the types of potential power they've got, because, as you say, they're not all the same. And that can even be true in the same workplace, that different groups of workers have different amounts of different types of potential power. So in the book, I use a model of potential power adapted from a great book by Beverly Silver. And the first of those is what I call structural power that comes from workers' position in the production process or in the wider economy. And I guess some topical examples of those would be we've had some dock strikes that Liverpool and Felixstowe, they only involve a few thousand workers, but mm. they handle majority of Britain's uh, container traffic. And it's obvious that they have a potential impact on the economy that goes far beyond their numbers. Or we could think historically, if people have seen the film made in Dagenham about the uh, Ford sewing machinists strike uh, that won some of the first equal pay legislation. It was only one very small part of the Ford workforce involved in those strikes, but you can't sell cars without seat covers. So by taking action, they were able to stop the whole of Ford's production. But of course, not every worker has that kind of, or much of that structural power. So some people's work is organised much more if you like, in parallel. So, um, you know, if I'm working on a supermarket checkout and uh, I stop work and you carry on on your checkout, nobody really notices. We need a lot more what I call associational power. We need much more organisation to be able to have an impact. But I think there are examples perhaps people think about a bit less. Um, So COVID really revealed the potential power of teachers, particularly early years and primary teachers, because when the kids weren't physically in school, half the rest of the workforce was off work looking after them. So we saw that their action potentially had an impact much wider across the economy. So we could also think about market power. So the power that people get from their position in the labour market. So things like how easy we are to replace is one side of it, but also what kind of resources we have to cope without getting paid so do we have an allotment do we have a strong community that can give us support do we have savings do we have a generous welfare benefits system we can dream can't we um, that would um, support us uh, if we weren't being paid so those kind of things affect potential power of workers as well and i give a few other examples as well but i think crucially all of these are about potential power And to turn that into actual power, people firstly have to be aware of it, which is why I think getting workers to talk about what type of power they've got is really important. They need the organisation to be able to wield it. You know, you can have action and we've seen some great examples like the Amazon warehouse sit-ins where people who weren't even in a union managed to take strike action. You know extremely uh, inspiring seeing that happen but you can't do that over a sustained period of time or involving a lot of workers without organization and clearly if you're in a group that doesn't have a lot of structural power you need more organization you need to organize a much bigger number of workers to be able to wield your power and then the third element is really if you like the political will so there's a a really common problem in the trade union movement this idea of kind of partnership the idea that workers have a shared interest with their employer and the best way to advance workers interests is to make sure the boss is as successful as possible. And hopefully some of that will trickle down to the rest of us. And and clearly, if you, if you buy into that idea, you can't really fight because you're more afraid of hurting your employer than you are of getting hurt yourself. And uh, that really is a problem. So we need to address all three of those elements, the awareness, the organisation and the ideas. If we're going to have uh, effective power for workers to be able to advance their interests, mm.
0: yeah, it's interesting this year to you know, to note that there hasn't been a, a nationwide strike of nurses in I think 106 years, so it feels like we're really in unprecedented territory or waters here. Um, so Siobhan, I suppose I want to ask you, like, how have things? changed in in your workplace over the last few years i'm sure we can all imagine some of the ways it's got worse but in terms of the general working conditions in terms of pay could you give us a bit of a catch up i suppose of what it's like actually working as an nhs worker at the moment and and how that's changed
2: you know being honest it hasn't changed a great deal since i joined the nhs because a lot of these issues are historical mm. going beyond before i joined so i've been an nhs nurse for Roughly six years now. And pay has been declining in particular, probably for about a decade, you know, of real terms pay cuts. So this problem existed before I even joined the NHS. So it won't be as obvious to me as it will to nurses who have been working in the NHS for, I mean, some of the nurses I speak to, particularly on social media, have been there over three decades. So they have witnessed uh, the decline, the closure of beds, the breakdown of social care. So I know about the problems that are happening, but I've not been there to actually see them historically. Pay is obviously an issue which is at the forefront. Technically, this is the first UK-wide strike ballots in 106 years, but I don't know if you're aware there's actually an update in Scotland right now, Mm. which is the Scottish government did come back to the table and renegotiate on pay and they re-released another offer. So all of Scotland's nurses right now, we don't know what's happening because we don't have strike dates, whereas England, Wales and Northern Ireland have set their strike dates for the 15th and 20th of December. So we're a little bit in limbo up here in a bit of a unique situation. Yeah.
0: Mm. Again, before we talk about the current sort of strikes, I mean, I think I saw a figure circulating. This goes back to what Ian was saying in terms of Sources of potential power. Um, I think the suggestion was on Twitter, maybe that there's like hundred thousand vacancies across the NHS in the country at the moment, which clearly suggests some you know massive problems with both recruitment and retention of staff. Do you have any sense 100%. of why? Yeah. Do you have yeah. any sense of why this is the case? Um,
2: uh, yeah. I mean, I would say there's probably two significant issues. The first one being pay. You know, nurses in particular. So obviously, as a nurse that is where I understand mostly, have lost a third of their pay over the past 10 years. The NHS has become more pressured, you know, we've got an aging population, we don't have enough support through the social care system. So the NHS is a a difficult place really for people to work in general. It obviously does vary from area to area, even within certain trusts or health boards, there'll be some areas that are better than others. However, the stress is significant and agencies in particular are now offering staff better rates than the NHS can. So that's one of the reasons why we're struggling to retain the nurses that are already in the NHS, because they're seeing that if they go to work in private industry, essentially as an agency worker, they're going to earn better money. So there's no incentive for them to stay, because often working for an agency will be less stressful and far better paid. So that is a key aspect of the problems we have with retention.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's clearly a real issue. What has been the run up to the recent ballots? I mean, I know you say there's a different situation in Scotland than England and Wales right now. But what has the run-up to these recent ballots on industrial action been like? Um, Are there any sort of issues that are particularly motivating you and your colleagues to get to the point where you'd be willing to take strike action? What have those conversations with colleagues been like? What are the common concerns and I suppose reservations around going out on strike as a nurse?
2: So obviously, I've been out here uh, trying to work towards this for a couple of years now, working with grassroots campaigns, uh, because there's actually a few grassroots campaigns who have kept us all informed what's happening across, the, the. I'd say there's four major health unions. Speaking to colleagues, I've noticed the difference. So when I started this maybe two and a half years ago, people weren't hugely Engaging with me. They knew that this was something that I was becoming involved in, so I would keep them up to date with the information. But this year, I noticed a huge difference. All of a sudden, people were coming to me and saying, What do you think of this offer? It's ridiculous. Mm. (laughs) You know, I'm going to vote, I'm going to vote to reject. And instead of me trying to seek people out to speak to them about why I thought it was important to, you know, send your vote back and have your say, I think people were coming to me. So that was great. The thing that I think is probably fueling it, there's a couple of things. First of all, I think my colleagues have seen other sectors, communication workers, real workers, teachers quite publicly speaking about their industrial action, mm-hmm. picket lines, inflation is another key factor, Yeah. Uh, energy costs. These are the things that are worrying staff that I work with. So I think a combination of all that coming together has really helped us achieve the ballot turnouts that we got in Scotland uh, this year, which the turnouts were phenomenal. As you know, because uh, of anti-trade union laws, we have to achieve 50%. Yeah. And I can tell you that in the previous two years, it was heartbreaking for me to see when we didn't hit those turnouts. This time, and I know in my area specifically, it was nearly 70%. And I think that really shows you the strength of feeling that is out there in the workforce just now in the NHS, uh, particularly in Scotland and, all in Northern Ireland as well, turnouts were amazing. I think mm. Wales, it was all but one trust, I think you called them in Wales, rather than health boards. England, the turnout was variable, but obviously that shows the areas where the unions still need to do work to get people engaged, you know. Mm.
0: I think I saw Mick Lynch give an interview, obviously, Um saying that a lot of people are looking to the RMT action as a source of you know potential inspiration for them wanting to take action in their own sector or f- or feeling that taking action wouldn't be futile, that there is actually a possibility of winning. I think it's a bit of a truism that you know industrial action leads to people wanting to join their union or get involved. Does anyone know have we seen a sort of an upsurge in you know membership this year in addition to the action? Ian, you might know.
1: I haven't seen any stats, but certainly all the union people I talk to uh, say that they're seeing growing membership, definitely. And when people are balloting, they're seeing growth around that as well. Uh, I think you're absolutely spot on about the question of inspiration. I mean, for me, the current kind of uptick in strikes and unionisation—it's kind of five things coming together. You've got, first of all, the cost of living crisis, which is the most obvious. But secondly, You've got the fact that there's more vacancies than there are people out of work, which reduces people's fear of taking action. And it makes people more confident that the employer will be reluctant to sack people or whatever. So that's a factor. I think thirdly is the inspiration. So there was this big uptick in Google searches for joining a union when the first RMT strike happened. I think it was back in June. So there'd been quite a number of strikes before that, but they hadn't really hit the news in the same way the RMT one did. Um, I think also the fact that, whereas a few years ago, you know, a lot of workers might have felt, well, maybe if we can get the government out and get Labour in, you know, that will address some of our concerns. I think now expectations of a Labour government are so low that people are not really looking to that for a solution and are having to look to themselves to try to resolve things. And finally, I think, and Siobhan kind of touched on this, that the current cost of living crisis is coming after decades of accumulated grievances where people have felt that employees have been just getting things their own way you know intensifying work making people work short staffed all those kind of things as well as the issues around pay so pay has been the last straw for people and you know i think if you look at the nhs votes i think that's a case in point where you know pay feeds into the understaffing because you know, it, it makes it harder to recruit and retain people. And then that adds to the workload pressure, which is the other thing that I hear people complaining about a lot, just excessive workload. And, uh, you know, that's one of the big issues as well. So in a sense, when, when workers are taking action over pay, they're also taking action to defend the public services they're working in, in, in the health service and so on, because that's going to help us make sure that uh, there's adequate staffing and not the dangerous levels of staffing that we often see at the moment.
2: Yeah, just to say there, I completely agree with what Ian just said. This vote, although pay is the immediate issue, it really is multifactorial. It is about pay, it's about patient safety for nurses, it's about the future of our profession and maybe even more broadly the future of the NHS because things cannot continue the way that they are, 100,000 vacancies, I think that's about a tenth of the workforce Uh, I could be wrong, I don't have the figures to hand, but it's a a huge deficit and something needs to change, you know, for patients and for staff.
1: And there's the absurdity, isn't there, you mentioned about people leaving to join agencies, that the NHS is paying eye-watering amounts of money to the agencies then to cover for the vacancies they've got because they're paying their own staff so much less and it's not really being a saving, it's just handing over money to these agencies instead of paying it directly to the NHS workers.
2: Exactly it's not good value from a taxpayer point of view I mean this is something that I've spoken about fairly often on social media actually because when you look at the bill for agency workers it's (laughs) eye-watering and I think it does create an element of resentment because if if you can imagine if you're working a shift and you are the NHS nurse on that shift and you're working beside a nurse who's getting maybe three times the hourly rate that you are uh, roughly and essentially as the, the nurse who's familiar with that area you have more responsibility and you're getting paid way less than the person next to you I mean it's a historical issue I know but it's something that I've never completely understood, because I've always felt like, where is the happy medium? You know, for example, if you have a shift that is uncovered, but you're offering standard rates for it, and no one necessarily wants to take that shift because people are already working hard and the incentive isn't there, and then you immediately jump to paying exorbitant agency rates, Wheels the in-between? The in-between would save money, and it would also reduce agency use. So, yeah, I don't understand that as a lay person.
0: Mm, definitely. I mean, I suppose I wanted to ask a question about public perception or public sympathy for workers going on strike at the moment. I mean, Siobhan, what's your sense of how much public support there is for nurses going on strike? Is it tempered by fear of what will happen to you know patient care or is it have you largely encountered support? And then has that been echoed in the mainstream media, or is there a bit of a disconnect there?
2: Uh, I think there's an intentional disconnect there. Yeah. So if you were to look at the right-wing media, I think they would convince people that we don't have the support. There was actually a poll conducted. I, I know I've done my, my own poll on Twitter at one point. At 10,000 respondents, 96% support for nurses going on strike. Although I accept there may be an element of bias there because a lot of the people that follow me tend to be more left-wing, more socialist. So poll conducted by the RCN, I believe, indicated 80% sympathy for nurses going on strike. That one, I think we could say, is pretty accurate. Certainly people message me constantly with messages saying that we understand, you know, we wish you didn't have to do this, We know it's a last resort to withdraw your labour, particularly in the healthcare sector, but we're behind you. So I think the right wing would have people believe the support isn't there. I completely disbelieve that narrative because it's not what I've experienced for two and a half years out here doing this. I do think we've got the public support. I believe they will come to our picket lines when the time comes. I absolutely wholeheartedly believe the public back us.
1: I think that's right. I mean, you think, you know, how long ago is it that people were being egged on to kind of clap for key workers and so on? And yet we've got pretty much all the groups of key workers, from transport workers, health workers, having to take action to try and prevent a dramatic cut in their living standards. I think the real challenge is how do we turn that sympathy, which I think is overwhelming, into solidarity, you know, where it can actually help people win, because though we've seen a lot of wins in a uh, lot of the smaller strikes, you know, often involving Unite, sometimes GMB. It's proving harder to win the really big national strikes you know, where often the government is standing behind the employers and obstructing a settlement. So uh, we do need to make sure there's so, you know, solidarity there, not just in terms of people, you know, saying nice things on social media or visiting picket lines, but also fundraising. When it's big national strikes like the uh, RMT or the CW, those unions can't afford to pay strike pay to their entire membership so uh, you know that we need to do fundraising and be making sure there's real networks being built across different industries and unions so that we can be supporting each other.
2: Absolutely Uh, just to pick up on what you said there about strike benefit we are in a very fortunate position in the RCN that I do know for a fact that we have quite a significant strike fund built up so if uh, nurses in Scotland do end up out in strike, we will get some element of strike benefit. But I have already said to people who have asked how can we support nurses that a strike fund donations you know, fundraiser will, will launch. It's not out yet, but it, it will come, which will just help us to carry this dispute forward and hopefully to victory.
0: <laughs> yeah, definitely let's talk a little bit about the landscape legislatively, I suppose, in the country, because we all know that there's been many years of increasingly hostile legislation to workers in terms of curtailing what action can be taken. So I think, as I understand it, there's a transport strikes minimum services level bill in Parliament at the moment. Um, Ian, perhaps you could Tell us a bit more about the contents of this bill, what it intends to do, and how it fits into this longer sort of arc of anti-union legislation.
1: Yeah, I mean, we don't have a right to strike in Britain, which is outrageous. What we have is immunity from civil action for unions, for inciting people to break their contracts, providing they jump through certain hoops and some protection against dismissal and other detriment for workers who take part in that action Um, but what's been happening since the early 80s really is a gradual narrowing of the possibilities for that action so first of all people can only take action in a dispute with their own employer so gone are the days when engineering workers used to be able to go on strike demanding health workers got a pay rise which i think is absolutely brilliant i mean It'd be so much better, wouldn't it, if instead of health workers having to take action, which is clearly a really difficult thing to do when you care about the service you're providing. If we could have workers in industries where somebody was making a lot of money um, out of that, and then we'd have the employers of those industries piling pressure on the government to settle and make sure that health workers got a decent pay. So that kind of solidarity action was made unlawful. Um, And then, of course, we've had these ridiculous ballot restrictions where even though there's overwhelming support for strikes, quite often they can't go ahead lawfully. Um, So we've just seen the results of Unison's ballots in Health where... There were overwhelming votes to strike right across the health service, and yet nearly all of those failed to get the turnout required to make the strike lawful, which is just so anti-democratic. You know, MPs wouldn't be sitting if they had to get majority votes in their constituencies. Uh, So a standard is being applied to workers that just doesn't apply to anybody else. So this bill you mentioned is the latest twist in this long history of anti-union and anti-worker legislation. And the idea is that ministers would be able to set minimum service levels for transport and define what counts as transport. And then it, employers and unions would have to negotiate about how that would be provided. And then the employer would be able to say which workers it required to come into work when they were on strike and, uh, and what work they would need to do. So, and unions would be required to try and encourage their members to scab on their own strikes. It's absolutely appalling and i think you know we've already got a situation with the anti union legislation where some groups of workers simply cannot take lawful industrial action so if you look in construction For example, you have such a fragmentation of employment that on big building sites, often there are dozens and dozens of different employers as well as people who are allegedly self-employed. You have high turnover of workers coming on and off the site as different jobs need to be done. Uh, So the idea that you could go through a ballot process that takes months to have a lawful strike is just absurd. So already we have a situation on those jobs where typically workers have to strike outside the law if they want to stand up for themselves. They have to just put their hands in the air at a meeting and walk off the job and rely on sticking together to protect themselves, not on any legal protection. And this happens month in and month out in construction already. But I I think what the new legislation may do is put workers in uh, transport industries in a position where they have to choose between lawful and ineffective action or unlawful and effective action. And I really hope people don't allow themselves to be trapped by trying to comply with uh, more legislation intended to make our action ineffective. And I don't think people should assume that this will be restricted to transport either. So there's criteria in the bill to determine what level of cover should be provided, what level of service should be provided during a strike, includes a whole set of factors which are all about not inconveniencing the public. So there's nothing to support workers' right to strike at all. And just as an example, one of those uh, criteria is about the importance of children and young people being able to attend education. And of course, the education unions are now extremely worried about that because if it's right to force a transport worker to scab on their own strike in order to ensure some kids can get to school. Obviously, it's the same argument could be applied to teachers, couldn't it, to make sure that education isn't disrupted. So it's an extremely repressive piece of legislation which needs to be opposed.
0: Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you go through in the book, the limits of a sort of rights-based, you know, approach to, you know, questions of Solving workplace grievances, I suppose, and the difference between seeing our legal rights as a ceiling uh, and and a floor and how really the challenge is to use rights in a way that builds collective strength rather than just reinforcing the illusion that our own power is unnecessary. But you talk also in the book about, you know, strike action, because it's hugely important, and you discuss other sort of forms of industrial action as well, action short of a strike, which is often provided with the acronym ASOS. So, could you give some examples of, I guess, action short of a strike, and I suppose the limitations of that as a sort of alternative to taking strike action, and maybe also where it has, where it can be effective as well?
1: We need to think about collective action in its broadest sense. So, there's everything from people signing a petition, or all wearing a sticker on the same day, or having a march, or you know, there's 101 different types of collective action people can take. Some of those then get classed still as industrial action by the law. And if they don't involve striking, then they count as action short of strike. So some of the common ones are things like withdrawal of goodwill. So most jobs rely on workers going out of their way to be helpful, to keep the wheels turning and uh, and so on. So that, that can be quite effective. Overtime bans are quite common. I mean, I, I know I was talking to some striking rail workers when Grant Shapps, said that the rail employers should uh, stop uh, workers who'd struck from uh, being able to do overtime, they were really very amused because, of course, the rail network totally relies on overtime to keep running. So um, the transport secretary at the time was basically talking about imposing an overtime ban that would have uh, really wreaked havoc on the railways. So those kind of things can be powerful. Um, A couple of the challenges with it, though, is that sometimes employers deduct full Wages for uh, partial compliance with what you would normally do in your work. And this has been a big issue in higher education. So, employers basically deducting 100% of pay for partial performance. And that's led workers then to the conclusion that taking action short of strike, if you're not prepared to strike as well, is very easy for an employer to defeat. So, employers need to know that if they do make a full deduction, they'll be faced with a full strike and they'll see an escalation by workers as well. So often, action short of strike can be most effective when it's around strikes. So where it increases the impact of strike action, maybe by, you know, in a manufacturing environment, maybe running down some stocks or just slowing things down before you take strike actions, the strike has a more immediate effect will be be an example.
0: Mm. I mean, one thing that recurs throughout the book as well is the importance of not seeing your union as a third party. And again, you talk about the iron law of organising, which is never to do for others what they can do for themselves, which I suppose really uh, yeah, speaks to that idea of seeing the union as something that is built by the people within it, rather than as a sort of an apparatus that you can appeal to. Yeah, Siobhan, what's your experience of the RCN been like, and your experience of being active in union stuff? Because obviously, no one wants to go on strike, it's born out of a necessity, but I think a lot of people will also say that being involved in this kind of work, building collective power, is also a positive experience. Is that something that rings true for you? Uh,
2: yes and no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I've personally been with the RCN about a year. Uh, I left them after I disagreed with another trade union's decision up in Scotland uh, to accept a pay offer from the Scottish government which I was quite against. I felt that we could have done better. And so I voted with my feet, as I would tell anyone to do. Uh, Moved to the Royal College of Nursing and I've been getting more involved with them over the past year. It's not easy. Uh, I would say one of the biggest challenges over the past couple of years is getting people to engage, you know, making people aware of ballot dates, explaining particularly ballot fatigue is becoming a problem because... You have the initial, you know, consultative and indicative ballot. And then you say to people, when the formal ballot comes out, right, you need to send your vote back. And they say, but I've already voted. I say, no, this is this is the legal ballot now, so you, this one will come in the post, you need to send that back. And then the government has made another offer, and then there's another consultative ballot. And then people reject that, and they think, right, we're going to strike now. And now we're in the situation where we have another consultative ballot about the third author from the Scottish Government. So, it's exceptionally tiring, I think, to be an activist. It's almost a part-time job on top of the job that you're already doing. And I think maybe after two and a half years, a lot of us are a bit (laughs) battle-weary. We've achieved a lot, there's no doubt about it. Starting off, mainly I would say I operated within grassroots the first year and a half, but you have to be patient because uh, you're trying to learn about trade union bureaucracy, es- essentially how things work, and then you're trying to work with people, that's the part that I find easy, mm. is speaking to people and explaining what power they have, simply by you know, deciding that they're going to uh, vote for strike yeah, it's it's a mix you know, it's positive for me, I wouldn't do it if I didn't believe in it but it's, it's, it's a hard slog and particularly At times, as activists, we feel trade unions could go far further than they are. Quite often, I feel like they throw in the till, you know, which has not happened with the RCN, as you know, because we've got these strike mandates. And if people like vote to reject the recent consultative ballot, then we have a live strike mandate that's valid for six months. It can be activated, uh, I think, after 14 days' notice to the health service in Scotland but it requires so much patience i can't even tell you you know <laughs> it's difficult it's difficult
1: i think it's useful to think about unions having a kind of dual character you've got the side of it that's it's just a collective organisation of workers which is what matters a lot of the time you know it's just you and your workmates uh, organising collectively but it's also an institution with its own kind of bureaucratic processes its own apparatus its paid staff and so on And uh, I think people who are more involved, particularly those who are paid employees of a union, can end up prioritising the kind of institutional needs of the union over the priorities of the workers themselves. So you quite often see friction and conflict between members, particularly when there's something going on. You know, that's when people feel that friction most between the members and the paid apparatus and It's one of the things I cover quite a bit in the book because I think one of the dangers is people come into being involved, maybe having learnt about unions from the BBC or the Daily Mail, and they have this image of what it's going to be like of people trying to push them into taking action at every opportunity. And then they try and make something happen, and they find it can sometimes be a bit like wading through treacle, and that the people who you imagine would be helping you are sometimes not as helpful as they might be, and sometimes are downright obstructive. And I think it's really helpful for people to have an understanding of that and try and think about how how you can navigate that and um, try and get the best you can out of the union organisation.
2: absolutely agree. It's actually quite strange that you use the expression wading through Trico, because about two hours ago on WhatsApp, in one of my grassroots groups, I had said, guys, at this point i feel like i'm wading through treacle like i need i need a bit of a boost i need some moral support here because you know it's strangely it's actually harder right now because we're closer than we've ever been yes i was heartbroken the previous couple of years when we didn't make the turnout but i think it's actually even harder right now to be patient because we are so close to finally going out and getting an opportunity to take a stand you know Uh, it feels like it's been a very long time coming for me two and a half years probably isn't a long time in the frame of bureaucracy trade unions everything that's been happening but it feels like forever to me
1: (laughs) and i think part of the reason that is so tiring as an activist is that we're kind of working against how unions have sold themselves for decades often that Mm. as if they were just providing a service to individual members you know if you're in trouble, give us a call kind of thing, or even worse, you know, cheap wills or insurance or, you know, that kind of thing. Um, And so that sets an expectation amongst many members of a passive relationship to their union. And clearly, if you're trying to organise collective action, you're having to break from that and uh, help workers understand the only way they're going to get change is by acting collectively, not having a passive relationship to their union. So that kind of servicing... Model of trade unionism has really created a rod for our own backs that um, we're continually having to try and undo that and and teach people a different way of of organising.
2: Yeah, you're spot on there. You really are because so many nurses, that is the relationship that they have with their trade unions. They see a trade union as someone that if something goes wrong, then that's when you call upon your trade union. If you're in some kind of dispute with your employer, something's gone wrong at work, So it's a lot of energy to try and get nurses to see that, yes, the trade union is there in times of trouble, but also in situations like this, that we are that union and that we have the opportunity to influence the way that the union will act through our vote, through engaging with our branches. I mean, I'm sure if you asked any activist across the UK, and I've been guilty of this myself, what attendance at their branch meetings was actually like. You know, I think most people will say the same thing. They really struggle to get people because people are tired from working. They've got responsibilities, work-life balance is already, I think, abysmal in the UK. So trying to get people to give up more of their time and energy to come and actively be a part of their union, it's, it's hard. It really is a challenge.
0: Hmm. How can people try and avoid the sort of burnout associated not only with their own demanding workloads, but also this kind of grueling long term, in many cases, action that you've been describing, Siobhan? Yeah. How can people try and avoid the burnout in the struggles, especially when you're met with setbacks or failures? Um, I know, Ian, in the, in the book, you kind of address this and give some some ideas.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think there's a common myth that burnout comes from doing too much and obviously, if you really do way, way too much, then that can happen. But I, I don't think that's the most common cause of burnout. I think more often it's because people suffer setbacks and they don't understand them. So if you put a lot of effort into something and it goes wrong and you don't know why, it's natural to feel a sense of despair or to turn on the people around you and blame each other. So I think it's really important that we build a culture in our organisations where people can discuss setbacks and try and understand why setbacks or defeats happen and learn from them. Because if you can understand after a setback, okay, that happened because of this and that. Next time we could try and do something a little bit differently. Then you have the ability to kind of recover from that setback and even learn from that setback and build something stronger. So, So I think having that culture where it's okay to say, you know, that wasn't really a victory, was it? That, was, you know, that wasn't that was good. Uh, and to try and talk through how it happened and to be supportive of each other, to recognise that when you're involved in a struggle, that, um, you know, we get tired and sometimes we get ratty um, and we have to try not to take it out on each other and we have to support each other when we're struggling. Yeah,
2: quite often people within our grassroots movement, if they are having a period where they can't engage, you know, personal problems physical health problems, what they'll do is they just take some time away from the group, knowing that when they're ready, they'll be fully welcome back. <laughs> I mean, our WhatsApp chat is, it's like a train station, you know, people coming in, people leaving, people coming back. And that's absolutely fine, because that's that's how we endure, in my opinion. We just have to take time out if it's needed. its I've never gotten to that point yet. And I do agree with what Ian's saying, that sometimes it's not necessarily about doing too much, bit about dealing with the frustration when things aren't going the way you would hope. I know that's something that I'm struggling with recently. Uh, it's almost like a sense of, for me, it's been two and a half years. For everyone else, it probably feels like this is actually quite a short action, maybe a few months, seeing the, the ballots, the results, the consultative ballots, the next offer. But for me, it's been two and a half years of going to rallies, uh, engaging politicians in our cause, having protests, learning how to talk to the media uh, building social media accounts so that we can uh, elevate our voices out there. So the thing that causes that feeling of burnout, I would agree with Ian, is is when things aren't going exactly (laughs) according to the timetable that in my own head I expect should be happening. And I think a lot of the members probably are feeling the same way. We are so ready to go at this point that any delay is just feeling frustrating for us. Like I can sense it that, that that's the feeling out there. People are just ready to strike now. We want to get out there. We just want to do that now.
1: And that's exactly what the anti-union legislation tries to make as difficult as possible because yeah. it puts these delays in the process. It puts these unnecessarily slow and bureaucratic processes in place to wear us out, to grind us down, to sap people's enthusiasm and to make it incredibly confusing. I mean, even... Lots of activists and people who work for unions get confused about the balloting process. And so it's not really surprising that members, if they're faced with two, three, four different ballots, lose track of what's going on or uh, whether they've already done it and and so on. And it's designed to be difficult.
0: Hmm. Well, we're coming up on I think we've been talking almost an hour, so I suppose I'll, I'll wrap up with a couple of concluding questions for, for both of you, really. I mean, firstly, do either of you have any advice to other people out there considering, you know, perhaps whether to be involved in their union for the first time or, you know, whether or not to, to vote in favour of industrial action, whether that be, you know, healthcare workers or workers in other sectors? So that question firstly. Um, and then, yeah, any shout-outs or sort of final calls to action that either of you would, would like to share with our listeners?
1: I guess on people considering whether to be involved, I'd say that uh, the current situation where we're seeing our living standards eaten away at very, very rapidly, for most workers, there is no individual solution to this. Um, Even if people hop from job to job in pursuit of better paying conditions, they tend to find the problems follow them because employers are competing with each other to undercut each other. So there are only collective solutions. And it can seem quite daunting, but the first steps are quite simple. It's, you know, get talking to your workmates, listen to them, find out what they care about and start thinking through collectively what you could do about that. Um, When it comes to voting for action, I I think the same sort of logic applies is if people don't vote for action, they're going to see their lives getting rapidly worse at the moment. And I'd add that the current period we're in with a tight labour market is going to end quite soon. We've started into a recession already. We've got a government and the Bank of England trying to deepen that recession as quickly as they can through a combination of austerity and increasing interest rates uh, in order to drive more people out of work, in order to try and make workers pay the price for the inflation that's that's happening. So we have to seize the moment now to try to organise and resist if we can get in the habit of organising and winning now, then people will be much better placed to resist job losses as they come through, rather than allowing uh, job losses to take the whole steam out of the movement and see ourselves go through another cycle where workers yet again pay the price for problems we didn't make.
0: Yeah, thanks Ian. Siobhan, any, any last thoughts or yeah, calls to action or anything from you? I would
1: say
2: if you are a health worker, in the NHS listening to this it is the perfect time to come and join us in the trade union movement I don't care which union you join just join one of them get actively involved because trade unionism is the individuals that are within it yes it's difficult working within the bureaucracy at times but if you are not part of it then you can't expect change you know because this is what's been happening for years. I feel like at this point, you know, striking is a last resort, but it is now necessary. So if you are out there and you're not currently involved, come and be part of making history with us. There's never been a better time.
0: That was Ian Allenson and Siobhan Aston on Radicals in Conversation. If you'd like to find out more about Ian's new book, Workers Can Win, then head over to plutobooks.com forward slash podcast reading where listeners can get 50% off using the coupon podcast at the checkout. We'll be back later this month with our next episode of Radicals in Conversation in-house, so do stay tuned for that. Otherwise, we'll be back with you in the new year. So until then, thanks very much for listening and goodbye.